everyone. Welcome to Exploit It. I'm Alexis Jowski. And I am Kevin Daly's Reinvigorated Soul. Yes, because in this bonus episode, we're talking about Mandy from 2018, directed by Panos Cosmatos, I believe that's how you pronounce him. That sounds as good as anything to me. Crimson, primordial sky, the wretched warlock reached into the dark embrace. His fist closed around the serpent's eye. Strange and eternal. This movie, so I paired this with The Last House on the Left because this is a rape revenge where it's a family member of the victim that's getting revenge. Because there's rape revenge where it's the, the rape victim that gets revenge, but in this- Lady Snowblood, yep. Snow Miss 45. Yeah, which both are- uh, I spit on your grave. Oh, future episodes. <laughs> yep. I mean, they could be. But these are ones where it's more like Death Wish, where it's the- family right. member that gets the revenge. Exactly. And you'd messaged me how much you hated Last House on the Left. Yes. Just as I was sitting down to watch Mandy, and I realized Mandy is two hours long, really weird, and I'm like, oh my god, Kevin's gonna hate me. And then you messaged me back that you fucking loved this movie. <laughs> this is, no joke, one of my top ten favorite movies of all time. Really? Yes. It is a very unique film. So, jumping right in, it starts with this like poem on screen. I don't know if it's a poem or a song lyric, but it's Yeah, I'm not sure either. Something about rock bury me in rock and roll. When I die, bury me deep, lay two speakers at my feet, wrap some headphones around my head, and rock and roll me when I'm dead. It has nothing to do with the movie, actually. 
Not really, other than uh, than that, it's fuck. got a the, lot of yeah. references to eighties metal, I suppose. Yeah, because uh. we get our credits, um, which are in a very seventies eighties exploitation font. It's yeah, almost like I got, the Stranger's Thing font. Yeah, and uh, some nice finger tapping guitar solo, very eighties vibes from the music for sure. Well. The music there is Starless by King Crimson. Yeah, it's fucking sick. I didn't know we were going that hard. Yeah, English prog rock not, playing right off the bat. Not, not, King, not that King Crimson is like a hard rock band. I mean, just like, hmm, King Crimson, that's some shit. Love it. And incidentally, that song is from King Crimson's album Red, because we meet Nicholas's Nicholas Cage character, who is named Red. Also, something I want to talk When we get to the end, I've got so much to say about this movie. but yeah. And... Gonna try to keep it in while we talk about this. So Red is a lumberjack, and that's okay. That's right. Works all night and he sleeps all day. But it he, could be. He um he heads at home where there's his I don't know wife or girlfriend. I think girlfriend. It's never really established. They call her. They call him hubby at one. The the cultist. The early little bit early spoilers. Call him <laughs> hubby, but I think they're not married. They have different last names. Which is not necessarily indicative of them not being married, but I get the feeling that they're a cohabitating couple. And Mandy is a is an artist. She paints these like nude fantasy Frank Frazetta kind of paintings. Yep, some artistic booba. Yes. So Which we all see in very soft focus and we're listening to the radio and it's Reagan's spiritual awakening speech playing. So it's really setting the time and the mood. I do want to mention one thing, because when, when I talk about shit at the end of this movie, this is important. There's a scene where there's a very blurry smoking shot. Where there's somebody smoking something that looks like an hallucinogenic to me. Oh, that's so this probably is a, just the cast and the crew. <laughs> maybe, but... And I wrote, are we going on a vision quest? Which, kind of. We'll, we'll get back to it all in the end, because there's a lot to unpack here once we get through this. Yeah, this movie's a lot deeper than I remembered. Because I watched yeah. it, like, right when it came out. And I'm like, that was pretty good. And then watching it again, I was like, oh, this is heavy. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Because we get the first act of the film. Because the acts actually have their own titles. Yep. And so the first act is The Shadow Mountains, 1983 AD. Right, set in the Shadow Mountains, which are in California. Ah, I didn't know that they were real mountains. I thought it was just something the the director made up to sound ominous. <sighs> oh, the, they are they are real. And Let's try to get a more specific location here in a second. Keep going. So Nicholas Cage he comes home and he has to Mandy and he's like knock knock. Who's there? Eric Estrada. Eric Estrada who? Eric Estrada from Chips. Yeah, a horrible joke. And I'm like, was that ad libbed? <laughs> I'm almost certain it was. That seems very Nicolas Cage's sense of humor. Shadow Mountains are located in the Mojave Desert in eastern California. Oh, so they're hardly mountains. Those are like foothills. Yeah, they're on, right near the uh, Nevada border. Oh. So there you go. But real place. Real place. And actually makes sense for where this movie would take place and everything that's going on in it. Yep. We get long, prolonged scenes to develop the relationship that Red and Mandy have to where they start talking about the universe and the galaxy and everything, you know, cause she's reading this big book about the galaxy. Right. But she's also in other scenes reading this fantasy novel. Yeah. She, and they have a talk about what their favorite planets are. 
Yet her favorite planet is Jupiter, because its entire surface is a raging storm with a eye of the storm being larger than Earth, and, you know, she's fascinated by that. And Red, he originally says his favorite planet is Saturn. Which are both good choices, by the way. But then he says it's Galaxis. Galactus. Yeah. She's not a planet. Hell, he eats planets. It's true. Um, Jupiter's my favorite planet as well, because it's the one that's most visible from Earth. I was just looking at it today. Yeah. I mean, you can't really recognize it. but It's a bright orange ball. It's probably the second brightest thing other than the sun and the moon that you see on this planet. But, I mean, you look up into the skies, you don't see the bright orange ball. You see the glimmer of kind of a star. It doesn't totally well, look like a star. Well, it looks bigger than any star, at least around here. Because they're closer than every star. True, and it's massive. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I like that it feels close, even though it's far away. And actually, you know what's interesting that I learned from my astronomy class? Hmm. You know why stars twinkle and planets do not? Why is that? Okay, so the planets are a lot closer. Stars twinkle because we're seeing all the shit that's between us and them passing across. That's really cool. I really thought about that. Because the stars are way the fuck out there. They're light years away. Isn't the closest... Where, where, how far is the closest star than the sun? Not, not close at all, right? Like seven light years, I think. Yeah, something obscene. Yeah, but that's a little astronomy tangent. <laughs> um, we have Mandy walking to work the next day wearing her Black Sabbath shirt and a van approaches. Right. She had a Motley Crue shirt on the previous day. Yeah, she was wearing a Motley Crue. Today she's wearing Black Sabbath. So and she's a metalhead. Not that that's super relevant to the movie, but it's cool. The director obviously is. You know, it's a yes. lot of his interests that are coming yep. through. Yes. This, then, this is definitely a director passion project. And again, we'll get back to that at the end. And a van approaches. So we go to like deep red filter here to just underscore the ominous of of this. And we get get used to that red. Yes. Um, Instantly. And, color, color of the red spot yep. on Jupiter. Yes, it is. And the van approaches and we see a guy in the van that just kind of like notices Mandy and is suddenly like obsessed with her. And we get the title for Act 2 pop up on the screen. Children of the New Dawn. The cult's name. It is the name of the cult. And it's Jeremiah Sand is the cult leader. And he's high on something and talking to Mother something or other, her name. Mother Maggie or something. I wrote her name down way later. Yeah. Can't remember her name either now. I think that's right. Oh, Mother Marlene. Ah, Marlene, yeah. You know, and he, she, he starts talking about how he wants Mandy, which makes Marlene kind of jealous. But she's old, you know. It's just some sort of polyamorous cult. I mean, it's a cult, right? Like, cults do cult things. Yeah, and so he's like, send in Brother Swan. And Brother Swan comes in, and he's like, I need you to go get this woman. That that's This woman we saw, I need you to go collect her for me. I can't live unless we have her in our fold. Take the horn of Abraxas. Abraxas? Very important. In fact, one of the key to the whole, at least in an interpretation that I understand about the symbolism of this movie, very important. Hmm. Abraxas, if you, if for... Just I'm not on an acad- too familiar with Abraxas. So, Abraxas, if, if on an academic level, there's a little bit more to it than, than just on an academic level, is, is tied to Gnostic mysticism and is related to the seven classical planets. He's We don't actually know a whole lot about Abraxas as a character, sometimes described as a demon, 
by certain Christian sects. Because remember, the Gnostic Gospels are considered apocryphal, uh, sometimes described as an Egyptian god. So we uh, we don't know a whole lot about Abraxas purely from an academic standpoint, but it ties back to the planet thing. It does. And but there's there's a little more to it than that. Yeah. So he's like, use the horn of Abraxas and hands him some trippy looking ocarina thing. Which is the horn of Abraxas. They're like, offer up the porker too as a sacrifice because they've got this one cultist that looks, it looks like Porky Pig as a yeah. human. He's. He, he a thick boy. Thick boy with this completely round, naive face and, like, blonde, curly hair. Yeah. And just this dumb look on his face to even Brother Swan's like, oh, he couldn't find his nose in a mirror. He's, uh, he definitely is kind of a pig. Like, if, it's like, uh, you know that episode of Futurama where Bender becomes human? It's like if you turned a pig in human. That's kind of what they would look, you would look like. And then they're like, send in Sister Lucy. Sister Lucy is this young woman that goes in there, obviously for sex. Right, because cold. It's not really forcible rape, but it's psychological. Yeah, it's brainwashed. Yeah. Brainwashed rape. And so they, um, Brother Swan takes some of the cultists out there into the woods and blows the horn of Abraxas. And, you know, the cultists are like, now what? Now we wait. And he just sits there playing with the window. I love that scene. You know, it just goes on forever. They're just doing nothing. The one guy's playing with the window. Nothing's happening. Yeah. And then a biker gang shows up. Yes. Like, it's technically a biker gang, right? And my note is, are these Cenobites from Hellraiser? Yes, they have that vibe to the First of all, this music is just dripping with religious symbolism. I think we should uh, just establish that now. They also have a very Four Horsemen vibe to them. They do very much. And if we're going to go back to the rock music, Metallica's Kill Em All, which has the song The Four Horsemen, came out in 1983. Ah, and like, one of these bikers is just covered in spikes. They don't say anything. They look like demons. They do not look like a ge- They look otherworldly. To where you can conceivably believe that he blew this horn of Abraxas and summoned demons and tells them to go take this girl, Mandy. Right, and they drink this stuff. He gives them this stuff, which... It shows up again later. Um, and then says, we need blood. Blood for blood. Yeah, and, and, and Brother Swan's like, okay, but first, the job. You know, whatever he says exactly. But basically, go take care of what we asked you to do, then you'll get your blood. Yep. And so we go to Red and Mandy. They're watching TV. The, the, the gang of Cenobites shows up. You know, very good horror sequence here, though. Yep. The lighting and everything is perfect. Okay, this is that point where I should establish that this is a gorgeous film. Like, from a from cinematography, it is stunning. Very much so. They knock Nicolas Cage out. Uh, Mandy, before she's knocked out, she sees Porky get killed. Yep, he gets like yeeted away. He's at the window and then just, just, like, screaming and is pulled away. So he was their sacrifice to these demons to get them to kidnap Mandy. And Mandy wakes up. With Mother Marlene and Sister Lucy. And Marlene tells her, okay, the scary men are gone. Now be a good girl and do as you're told. And um, gives her a bunch of acid, dropped right into her eye from an eyedropper. And it made me, uh, it made my eyes water. Oh, you have a thing for eyes. I do. Drops it right into her eye, and then injects her with scorpion venom. Yeah, it was some horrible, that looked like fresh hell to me. 
Like, just takes a scorpion and puts, you know, squeezes it, has it stab her neck, and Mother Marlene's like, this is what I call the cherry on top. So they send her, like, drugged to the gills in to meet the rest of the cult. And they're all sitting on couches, except for Jeremiah, who's lording above them all in his robe, and it is just red lights. Everything is awash with red here. And it is so trippy. Everything has that, that, uh, you know, that blur. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like time is slowed and voices are all warped throughout this whole sequence. Yep. Because she's super tripping. Tripping balls. Tripping. And, um, Jeremiah is like, do you like the Carpenters? Which I'm pretty sure that Mandy does not like the Carpenters. I mean, she's wearing a Black Sabbath t-shirt. Most likely does not like the Carpenters. And actually, no. Before this, it's actually really important, is when she's kidnapped there at home, she's wearing a black and white shirt with 44 on it. Yes. That's actually extremely important. That is extremely important. Both to... Other establishment later and how everything ties together thematically and um, symbolically at the end of the movie. So again, yes, the 44 shirt, extremely important. Yes. And so he's like, well, I'm going to play this music for you. And he puts on this song that, I don't know, it kind of sounds like the Carpenters through a haze of LSD. Every seed that gives us life. singing about himself. Yeah, he is. It's a song about how he is the embodiment of God, and he gives some big monologue about his cult and his views. It would be true torture to be kidnapped by a crazy cultist forcing you to listen to his shitty music. You know, and so he thinks he's sold his case, and so he just opens his robe, and he's standing there naked. Says something about covering her in hot loving. Yeah. Like, he expects her to just jump all over him. He's uncircumcised, by the way. Didn't notice, but okay. <laughs> I noticed that kind of thing. <laughs> and he's just standing there naked, and Mandy goes, y- You made this song? He's like, Yeah. A- about you? Yeah. And she just busts up laughing. Because it is fucking terrible. <laughs> it is a fucking terrible song that he's so proud. Like, you wrote this song about you, and so she just starts laughing her ass off, which pisses off Jeremiah. He's screaming at her to shut up. He's screaming at the rest of the cult to don't you fucking look at me. And he starts beating off. Yeah, and we presume rape. Yeah. Because it goes to he's now in the bathroom. And it's regular, regular lighting again. And he's like, I guess trying to talk to God. But like, what do I do? I've done something bad here. What do I do? Right. So he goes to Nicolas Cage, who is bound with barbed wire. Yep. On the wrists. On the wrists and in the mouth. Yes. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this girl, you know, you think you're in love? I'll show you what love is. And he brings Sister Lucy in and just hands her a gun and tells her, okay, go ahead, Lucy, kill yourself. Yeah, spins it, makes her play Russian roulette. Yeah, 
And she does it without hesitation. Well, a little hesitation. But no bullet in that particular chamber. And then they pull out some weird mystical knife. And I didn't write down what they called this knife. He's basically saying it's from the abyss, basically. It's a straight-up devil. And stabs him in the side, like Christ. Yeah, well, the knife, it's like solid black, and it has this, like, jade-looking eyeball thing at the the handle. So really... Yeah, it looks kind of like the spear, like the spear of Longinus, who Ah. stabbed Christ in the side. And so they stab him in the side, then they go in, they do their thing with Mandy, and they bring her out in a sleeping bag, and they tie the sleeping bag up. This, uh, so, we probably should go back a little bit. One of the, when they were establishing the relationship between the two, Mandy tells, uh, tells Red a story about her dad and the Starlings. Okay. Remember this story? Yeah. And how that she, his dad, she had, they had these Starlings that flew around, and they annoyed the shit out of her dad, who was, they would eat the cherries. And one day they're playing with a, uh, playing the, with her other kids in a parking lot, her dad shows up with a bag full of baby starlings and forces them all to beat them to death with a crowbar. And oh. the bag is, like, squirming and stuff like that. And this mirrors the scene, um, mirrors that description, because she's being dragged out in a bag and she's squirming. Yeah, and she's squirming in this bag. Uh, Brother Swan says something about the darker the soul, the brighter the flame, and they just set her on fire. They, set oh. the whole, they hang the bag up and they just set it on fire. And Nicolas Cage has no choice but to just sit here and watch her bird, and he is just understandably upset. <laughs> yeah, I will say a uh, little bit of overacting from Nick Cage here. If I'm going to critique anything about this movie, because I have very few things negative to say about it. Uh, anguish, is... not really an emotion. Nick Cage does well. He is watching his girlfriend burn to death. Yeah, and it's uh, it doesn't feel real. It feels like he is acting in this scene. He does do some other things very well later, with other strong emotions, but this scene, it wasn't really selling it to me. This one small thing didn't take me out of the movie, didn't bug me too much, but if I I have to offer a little critique so it doesn't sound like I'm just gushing over every little thing about this movie. Sometime later, he manages to escape from the... Yeah, uh, the blood (laughs) finally slick enough to get him out of the barbed wire. Yeah, and he goes to Mandy's charred corpse, which... You know, he tries to hold her in his arms, but she just, like, crumbles to ash. You know, and he goes home, and the TV's still on, and it's playing this commercial. The greatest commercial ever. My favorite scene in this movie. It's I will yeah, you, you, it's your favorite scene. You go ahead and uh, let it roll. It's Cheddar Goblin. Who eat all the macaroni and cheese? <gasps> Merv, Cheddar Goblin! Cheddar Goblin, did you eat all the macaroni and cheese? Nothing's better than cheddar. Cheddar Goblin. Cheddar Goblin! Cheddar Goblin! Cheddar Goblin! Yay! by Devane has 60% more cheese than the next leading brand. Kids and goblins agree, Cheddar Goblin tastes the best. That's why Cheddar Goblin was rated number one three years in a row. Cheddar Goblin by Devane. It's goblin good. 
and Hell yeah. for mac and cheese. And these kids are like, where's the mac and cheese? Oh, Cheddar Goblin and this goblin puppet is like, Cheddar is better. And he goes up and he just starts vomiting macaroni and cheese everywhere, all over these kids, all over the table. And the kids are just cheering. Um, it goes into a little bit about like, oh, yeah, we have 60% more cheese than our competitors. And just more with this vomiting goblin, just vomiting mac and cheese everywhere. And these smiling children. Nicolas Cage watches this commercial and goes, huh, Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> So I was born in 1983 when this is set, and I'm like, was this a real fucking commercial? Like, was this a product that lasted like a year, and I just was never old enough to see it? I don't think so. It's a fake, fake commercial. It's funny though. In the spirit of commercials from that time, yes, that's why it's like I'm unsure. It feels like the kind of commercial that would have existed in 1983. And oh, I looked it up today. uh, More about like this commercial that it was made by. This guy, this puppeteer, who Shane Morton um, and Casper Kelly. Shane Morton did the special effects, but Casper Kelly made the Cheddar Goblin commercial. He did a show on Adult Swim called Too Many Cooks. So, okay, you know it's and it does very much have that Adult Swim feel to this commercial. Yeah, this yeah. feels like something you would have seen on a well, any Adult Swim show, but yeah. And the, the thing that goes best with Cheddar Goblin Mac and Cheese is an entire bottle of vodka. Because that's the next scene. It's that yes. scene with Nicolas Cage and the mo- bottle of vodka. He goes into the bathroom, finds this bottle of vodka, and just starts slamming it. I mean, And I'm like, that's fair. And he is screaming. He goes from screaming to crying really over the top. But again, you, you like you said, he doesn't do anguish well. Yeah, this is a better performance, though, than the, yeah, I mean, it's, you can see that he's, he has a little bit of problem. I don't know. Nick Cage is a great actor, but this is not an emotion I really, uh, I I get strongly from him. But this scene is so raw. Oh, yeah. Because he strips down to his underwear, and he just finishes this whole bottle of vodka, just guzzling it down. I mean, again, seems, it's, uh, that's fair. After it's a shitty, shitty scene. And it does not look like somebody guzzling water. Like, he'll he'll take a big swig of this, and he, he like, recoils because, you know, it's vodka. Doesn't go down easy. Yeah. And then... Vodka, vodka's a rough... Well, al- hard alcohol straight is a rough thing to drink from a bottle, in general. Yeah. And he just slams it, and he's screaming, and he's crying. And we go to the next morning, where he's sober enough to drive, and he goes out to this trailer... Where there's this guy, and um, Nicolas Cage tells him, I've come for the Reaper, which is a crossbow. Which actually reminds me of a later scene uh, with Mandy, when she's with the cultist. One of the first things that Jeremiah asks her is, like, what do you see? And she's like, I see the Reaper approaching. But yeah. She's interesting. Interest. I mean, she's high in psychedelics, so yeah. some sort of prescience might be part of that. Incidentally, the guy who's getting the, uh, the uh, Reaper from is played by Bill Duke. Yep. Mac himself from Predator, another one of my top ten favorite movies. And he's got a couple boxes of Cheddar Goblin in his cabinet in the background. Mmm, Cheddar Goblin. And mm. he asks, oh, so what are you hunting? The Jesus most dangerous freaks. game. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Freaks, exactly. Oh, didn't know they were in season. They're always in season. Well, Nicolas Cage, he just goes, they lit her on fire! You know, and he just starts, just lays it all out. 
his buddy is like, okay, okay. Um, Nicholas Cage talks about the, the biker gang, you know, and describes them. Yeah. And he goes, well, that sounds like this group called the Black Skulls. It's, you know, these creepy-ass fucking people that only come out at night. So Nicholas Cage has his, his lead on how to find these people. And he goes home and he forges an axe. And th- this week on Forged in Fire. Uh, seriously, though, who the hell is this guy? What's his background? Dude can... Dude's apparently got a hidden high tech, a high, hidden crossbow that he calls the Reaper. He can make a giant axe, <laughs> forged axe. Which the axe is based on the F from the logo for metal band Celtic Frost. That's right. And then we get our title for Act Three, which is just Mandy, and the vengeance begins. Yes. And he goes after the bikers, and he's got his crossbow. Well, he, he takes, like, one out, but then they, they knock him out, and we get, like, a dream sequence, which is, like, an animated dream about Mandy. Yeah, oh, I do want to, because I had a note, and that kind of making me think about it. I'm, damn it, I can't find it. There's been some, there were some lines in here that would make great song song titles. Oh, fuck, I can't find There's Anyway, keep going. But, yeah, they, um... Try to find this one later. I wrote down the names of the biker gang from the cast, I, although I can't connect who is to who. Yeah. Um, but there's Scratch with a K, Scabs, Fuck Pig, and Dog the Dog. <laughs> Sound like characters from, uh, Road Warrior. Yeah, but he, he wakes up, and he's chained to a radiator and nailed to the floor. Uh, again, some religious symbolism not lost on me. And he is wearing the 44 shirt, by the way. Yes. Because that's when this guy from the gang who absolutely looks and sounds like a demon. I'm half convinced this guy's not even human. But so, okay, Bill, Bill Duke uh, explains that these guys are all hopped up on some crazy LSD, that uh, they were once uh, drug runners and got on the bad side of somebody who hooked them up a real bad batch, and now they're these insane, crazy pseudo-sadomasochists. Yeah, because this guy, he doesn't even really have a face. You know, he rips Nicolas Cage's shirt, which you know, pisses Red off. He's like, this was my favorite shirt! And the guy Indeed. goes, you have a death wish. Because he says he doesn't want to talk about it. And that's a, another important point for some of, the, some of the symbolism of this movie. Because I don't want to talk about it, but then he does call this guy, he just shouts at him, you are a vicious snowflake! And that's one of the things I said, you're a vicious snowflake sounds like a good song title to me. Yep. And... Vicious Snowflake, because my notes only refer to him now as Vicious Snowflake. He leaves the room, and Nicolas Cage manages to escape again. And there's, like, porn on the TV. Uh, there's like de- porn. Dead people's house. Is it like, they murdered somebody to get this house, because there's yeah, old dead people. Right, they, they came in, killed some people, and just have now occupied the house. Without bothering to get rid of the bodies, they don't care. And... Vicious Snowflake is Scarface into this gigantic pile of cocaine. Yeah. And um, Nicholas Cage reminds them that you ripped my shirt and they fight. Uh, he vomits blood all over Red. and But Red does eventually kill him, continuing to shout at him that you ripped my shirt. Yes. And he looks around the trailer and he finds this uh, mystery jar. Yes, which is the gunk that uh, Brother Swan gave them. Yeah, and he takes some of the gunk, and it's just, boom, instant trip. He just a drop, and he's just like, whoa! It's that, it's the hard fucking LSD shit. 
by the way, Nick Cage does crazy eyes better than anybody, right? Oh, yeah, he does. And so now we're going into crank territory, so might as well do a line, have some LC, whatever. Yeah, because there's like quick sequence of trippy shots, like one where his face melts off, and, and he's just like, whoa. And he goes outside to where there's this, the, the one that had the spike armor on. Yeah, he's got his axe again, and his crossbow. He's got but his it's now time to rip and tear. Because they have an axe fight. The other guy's yes. got an axe, so they just have this big axe fight. Nicholas Cage cuts off the dude's head and sets it on fire. <laughs> yeah. And then lights a cigarette with the burning head. Lights a cigarette. He finds a cigarette on the ground, like it's somebody's botch. And then, yeah, uses the flaming skull to light it. So Nicholas Cage goes to the chemist. Yes, who is the man with the golden gun, apparently. He's also the fucking Night King. <laughs> it's Richard Brake. Oh, is it? Yeah, he played the Night King on the Game of Thrones. He was also, like, one of the henchmen in Batman Begins, but most people know him as the Night King. Interesting. And, you know, he sees Nicolas Cage come in, and he says, I wrote the line down, Joven warrior sent forth from the eye of the storm. Jove is, Jove means Jupiter. So, again, he is, yeah, this guy is uh, an interesting prophetic guy. He's about to shoot, like, shoot back, and then he realizes that, there's a righteousness to this. He's like, you're on a good quest here. You know, you deserve what you're getting. And he's got this tiger named Lizzie. Would they? Would she be a thin Lizzie? Yeah. Well, interesting. Another rock band for those Irish rock band, Thin Lizzie. The uh, original script, Lizzie was a lizard. <laughs> and the day of filming, you know, Richard shows up on set and the director's like, oh, by the way, uh... Lizzie is now a tiger. Brings him onto the set where there's this big fucking tiger that's really intimidating looking. So he's like, "Oh, okay. I guess we, I guess we go with this." And um, but yeah, he says all this prophetic stuff, and he says, "You exude a comic darkness." Cosmic darkness. Yeah. Which again sounds like a fucking heavy metal line. Yeah. Cosmic darkness sounds like a good metal band name, actually. And so the chemist tells them where the the cult is. But he says, they're north. Yeah, that's pretty much all he said. Which I guess is direction enough, because Nicolas Cage is on his way. We get this really fucking, like, Frank Fazetta shot of this tiger roaring at the moon. Yep. And so Red arrives. There's another animated sequence of Mandy that he has. He has these when he dreams. Yeah. I'm like, I don't think I've ever dreamt in a cartoon, but hey, do you. He shows up, and Brother Swan tells him, like, she burned brightly. It's better to burn out than fade, and then killed. He kills him. Yeah, stabs him right through the mouth of the back end of the, of the, the axe. And then he gets in a chainsaw fight with a guy. Yeah, with the other dude. Oh, this is after he just, the dumb guy is, is like, polishing his car. <laughs> just throws the axe at yeah, him right there. Throws the axe right at the guy's head. That guy dies in two seconds. So, so I got uh, good news and bad news for that dude. Uh, car's going to be dirty in a second, but uh, the good news is you're, you're dead, so you don't care. Yeah. But it goes to the other cultist, and there's a fucking chainsaw fight, which I wrote all caps, exclamation points. Chainsaw fight! It's pretty and sick. It is awesome. I, it ends with Nicolas Cage impaling this guy in his own chainsaw. Yep, his super long chainsaw, just cutting him up on the center of his body. He goes to Matilda, who tries to say that she's the greatest lover. 
it's interesting. I'd like to point out that the, they have the. It's a, they're at, he ends up at the church, which they're building, which has both like Christian elements to it and pyramid elements to it. Again, kind of the Braxis thing. Yeah. Well, it is a cult, so there is a Christian element to cults that they stem from evangelic evangelism. Yep. At some point. We're down to two cultists now, as as you mentioned. <laughs> yep. Uh, there's Matilda, who's like, I'm the greatest lover, even though she looks like a wraith. And she says she has so much empathy, and I'm like, you don't have any empathy. That's the, you burnt a woman alive. And uh, we don't see immediately what happens to her. We just <laughs> see Jeremiah standing and worshipping himself, telling Nicholas Cage, you can't harm me! And then uh, he throws Matilda's head at her. That's, yep. And he's like, oh, Jesus, man! <laughs> It's uh, quite an intimidation check. Here's a head of your lover. Throw this at your feet. And, you know, Jeremiah is trying his best to be the, the great cultist. Like, you, I'm, I'm protected by God. You'll never hurt me. I this is all mine. Yes, the dank dungeon is all yours. I possess hallucinations that you will never know. And Bread is unfazed, and he tells him, The psychic drowns where the mystic swims. Which... Is a quote from Joseph Campbell about the thin line between genius and insanity, but, but, but with metaphysics. Interesting. Yeah, it's a quote from Joseph Campbell, and so Jeremiah keeps up with his stuff, but as he sees that Red is unfaced, he starts just crumbling, and he's down on his knees, like, "Don't hurt me! I'll, I'll blow you, man! I'll suck your fucking dick!" It's like so pathetic. Yeah, and. Nicholas Cage just squishes his head. Yeah, with a, kind of an orgasmic uh, release there. Yeah, you know, his mission is fulfilled. He hops in his it car and... Burns the uh, church, cleansed in fire, as it should be. Yeah, he burns it all down. And he hallucinates Mandy in his car as he drives away. And he looks at her with the fucking craziest Nick Cage grin you can imagine. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. As he drives through a strange alien wasteland. Yeah. The movie is a trip. Oh. Symbolism. Lots of it. Yeah. I did a little bit of research, read a little bit about the symbolism of this movie, and obviously nobody really knows exactly what everything is supposed to be doing. But uh, there's a couple of layers here. First of all, you can just look at it on its base level as a revenge movie with some Lynchian... Sort of surrealism to it, which is uh, that's a fun way. Lots of Lynchian, very Lynchian, and and that's a fun way to watch it. I mean, that's a great movie to watch just in of itself. There's a couple more layers you can look at. Obviously, there's a lot of religious symbolism in the discussion of Abraxas, Gnostic gospel thing. Can you view Aunt, uh, Abraxas if you view him as the demon form, as interpreted by early Christians who were discounting the Gnostics? then it's possible Braxis either is Jeremiah or is possessing him. Mandy represents purity of an angel, right? I must have her because what does evil want to do but corrupt the innocent, corrupt the pure, right? Yep. Uh, Red represents, you know, an everyman. He's us. He is a mortal, right? Uh, in over his head and uh, loving something that he doesn't doesn't understand. So that's that's another way to look at the religious symbolism. You have, of course, the crucifixion elements and stuff like that. The more the most interesting and the reason why I pointed out some very specific things, the uh smoking in the beginning and uh the 44 shirt 
and I will now bring up the thing that that's the most interesting to me is that uh, the director, the writer, uh, how do you say his name? Sorry, Panos Cosmatos. Cosmatos was wrote this movie while dealing with the death of his parents. Yeah, and um, so in, in dealing with that, this is you can view this as all in perhaps it could be the author's head uh, as a psycho a psychotropic trip in such a way to deal with grief. So you have um, you'll notice that all the characters may be. <laughs> this all might be red. So if you notice at the very end of the movie, they're both wearing the 44 shirt. Yeah, and we do get a real brief flashback where, like, he met Mandy while he was wearing that shirt. But she's also wearing the shirt. Yeah. So there is a um, there is a book by Carl Jung called The Red Book. And The Red Book deals with Carl Jung's psychological, like, trauma. It's, he's dealing with his internal issues and it has been said that he used psychotropics as a way to deal with this internal conflict hence back to the beginning part where he's there's that blurry scene where they're smoking probably some sort of hallucinogen that would explain the large alien wasteland the weird trippy scenes the use of colors all that stuff is this is an internal battle to deal with an emotional issue and you'll you know, uh, I pointed out earlier as well you have a death wish i don't want to talk about it he is dealing with suicidal thoughts as a result of whatever trauma he's trying to process yeah loss of a level and loss of a family member it's not really established if you go by the director it's his loss of his parents so and the abraxas thing is something that is quoted by jung he has um let's see he has some lines in i gotta find it shit because my brand, I can't memorize this shit. <laughs> um, but uh, he talks of Jung talks about in Seven Servants of the Dead, which is the last part of the Red Book. Carl Jung has a couple lines about um, Abraxas being a driving force in individuation, synthesis, maturity, oneness, related to figures of driving forces of differentiation. Uh, Helios, God's and the devil. So he wrote one of them. There is a god about whom you know nothing because man hath forgotten him. We call him by his name Abraxas. He is less definite than god or devil. Abraxas is activity. Nothing can resist him but the unreal. Huh. Abraxas stands above the sun god and above the devil. Uh, in the second part of the third sermon, that which is spoken by God the sun is life. That which is spoken by the devil is death. Abraxas speaketh of the hallowed and accursed word, where light, which is life and death at the same time. Abraxas begetteth truth and lying, good and evil, light and darkness, in the same world and the same act. Wherefore, Abraxas, terrible. Wherefore, Abraxas, terrible. So, uh, Abraxas is referenced in Carl Jung's Red Book. is about uh, internal strife. So, um, you can view this movie as many levels. Yes. It's so it's a Jungian... I, 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 do, I, I agree with the thesis that it is a Jungian trip in dealing with and how uh, Cosmatos dealt with the loss of his parents. The whole thing is a representation of the of the self, fighting the self. Good, evil, man, God, the devil, all of these things, you know, are elements of himself dealing with the psychological trauma he's going through. Uh, one interesting thing, though, with Cosmatos, because the movie he made before this, which is called Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is another mind trip you should check out sometime, but it deals a lot with 
his parents, but not their death, like this one does. Um, but it's about it's a criticism of the baby boomers because they. Yeah, he's a Gen X. He's a Gen X dude. He, the baby boomers went from you know the late sixties, early seventies with the uh, new age enlightenment, you know, flower children and drug trips. Right. They went from that to the conservative leaders of the nineteen eighties. You know, and you know that, and that's where they that's where they stuck, which is such an interesting thing. I've been thinking a lot about that lately too. It's like, how can a how can a culture, how can a group of people who go through the Vietnam War and all of that shit be the way they are today? Well, how can they go through that summer of love and the new wave, age of Aquarius, enlightenment, to being Michael J. Fox on Family Ties? You know, it's, it's so weird. It is. I'm weird. sure there's. I'm sure there'll be entire, you know, but, but, novel books written about the psychology of what happened to the baby boomers at some point. But beyond the black rainbow is a commentary on that, which, by the way, also takes place in 1983. Must have been an important year. Yeah. For uh, Mr. Cosmatos. Anyway, beautiful movie, cinematography, everything, the music, cinematography, uh, act, <laughs> acting. I mean, yeah. I think for the most part, Nick Cage is great in this. Um, just across the board, everything, the, the symbolism, the weird psychedelics, you know, the, I, I mean, I love this fucking movie. It's one of the s- most beautiful, strangest things you'll ever watch. This is a glorious film, and it, it's funny when you said, oh, I'm going to watch, I just thought this was going to be like, you know, whatever, violent, Nick Cage killing people to get revenge, you know, you thought typical stuff. Movie. And, and here I am reading about Carl Jung and Abraxas. I'm like, okay, well, I guess uh, I guess this is a different movie than I was expecting. Next week we are doing Street Fighter. Big change of pace there. That's a uh, there is no symbolism in Street Fighter. We go that is from Jungian symbolism and drug trips to fucking Street Fighter. Damien Damien Chapa, fucking Kylie Minogue. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Jean-Claude Van Damme and... Uh, Raul Julia with... Raul Julia in his last, like, performance. Yeah, he died during the making of that. But, uh, fun overacting performance. No, it, one thing I remember, and I should save it for the episode, but when I watched Street Fighter in the theaters... Yes. And I, I knew who Raul Julia was. I mean, he'd been in Adam's family and everything already, you know? He was well yes. known, and I respected him, even though I was like middle school. What the fuck's he doing in that? And what the fuck's he doing in this? <laughs> and he's in Street Fighter, and then the, the last thing in Street Fighter is to the memory of Raul Julia, you know, and it has his dates that he lived and died. And I just stood up, and I was like, "He's dead!" <laughs> like that was how I learned that Raul Julia died. Yep, pre-internet. Yeah, pre-internet was just the the end credits of Street Fighter, and it's just he died. No. Yeah. But yeah, next week is Street Fighter, so it's a fun. It is a fun movie that we reference a lot, so we might as well just do it since many many alum of Exploited <laughs> podcast starring in this film. Yeah, or future people that are in movies yep. that we're going to talk about, and yeah, future future. Yep. All right, so we will catch you then. Well, listen to our previous episode on Congo to find out where you can catch us on social media. Explainitpodcast.com or on Twitter, you know. Just yeah, do, do that. Watch Mandy and then do that. Yeah, watch Mandy first. No 
But you came and you gave without taking 